On Saturday the 1st of August 1914, the British Foreign Secretary Edward Grey and the German Ambassador to London Karl Lichnowsky worked out the basis of a deal to avoid world war. The German Kaiser and his advisers accepted at once and cracked the champagne. The Kaiser even sent a joyful telegram to his cousin, King George V of Great Britain. Now it's often said that the reason war broke out despite all this was that the German army was still determined to fight it. Now, there were some in the German army who wanted war, but that evening they were firmly overruled by the Kaiser. Von Moltke, chief of the German general staff, was so distraught he went home and suffered a minor stroke. What few histories of the period make clear is that the immediate reason the First World War broke out was not the pressure for war in Germany, but shocking and shadowy forces in Britain, and particularly in the British army, who wanted to fight it. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. On Saturday the 1st of August 1914, the peace of the world hung in the balance. Foreign Secretary Grey and German Ambassador Lichnowsky had brokered the outline of a deal. Britain would stay neutral. The Germans would suspend their attack on France and Belgium. The Germans accepted it at once. It was very likely that this agreement would tip the balance against the war starting at all. The British cabinet had been long, loudly and strongly in favour of staying neutral. The French government was facing domestic chaos and was likely to accept the offer of a German standoff in return for staying neutral too. There was a decent hope the Russians and Austrians would then also back down in their quarrel over the Balkans. A terrible war could be averted, at least for the time being. But there were other forces at work in Britain that bank holiday weekend. They weren't interested in making peace with Germany. As we've been witnessing in these discussions at the History Café, British foreign policy in the years up to 1914 was profoundly affected by the anti-German opinions of an opaque clique of bureaucrats at the Foreign and War Offices. Also by anti-German headlines in the popular right-wing press. These factions argued that the Germans had a secret plan to take over Europe, the British Empire, even the world. It really was a fantasy. As we saw in our last discussion, German documents clearly show that the German government had made no preparations even for a defensive war of more than a few weeks, let alone taking over the world. They were much more interested in doing a deal with Britain than stealing her empire. But the myth of German aggression led certain very well-placed diplomats and journalists to argue loudly that the sooner Britain went to war with Germany, the better. Even more insidious was what was going on among certain of the British generals. The British Army had emerged from the Boer War in 1902 with its reputation in rags. From 1905, a section of influential British generals had therefore begun secret, unofficial talks with their French opposite numbers. Not only were these British generals taken in by the empty black propaganda against Germany, they were actually enthusiastic to start a war in order to regain the British Army's lost glory. They believed that if 
or when, as they hoped, the Germans attacked France, the British army could send across a small so-called expeditionary force. They believed they would win a quick, cheap and glorious victory and regain the shine on their lost reputation. Now, Major General Henry Wilson was the British Army's Director of Military Operations. Ever since taking on the job in 1910, he'd been working on the plan to send the expeditionary force across the Flanders and defeat the Germans. It had never had cabinet backing. In fact, when the Liberal cabinet had found out about it, it had angrily made clear it would not back it. But Wilson, notoriously irascible Ulsterman that he was, didn't care about that. He loathed Britain's Liberal government, boozy Prime Minister Asquith and his wet ministers, or as he called them, Squiff and his filthy cabinet. Historian Douglas Newton has shown that on Friday the 31st of July, that's the day before the Grey-Lichnowsky deal, with tension mounting unbearably across Europe, Major General Wilson had begun pulling in his anti-German contacts. Directing events from his house in Sloane Square, Wilson was in close touch with Arthur Nicholson, permanent under-secretary and the most senior civil servant at the Foreign Office. Wilson was also in contact with Eyre Crow, whom we've met before, and who was now Nicholson's deputy. Nicholson was as anti-German as Wilson, and almost as fanatically anti-German as Crow. Wilson seems to have coordinated his campaign with Vicomte Lanousse, the current French military attaché. They were also in touch with Winston Churchill, the politician in charge of the Navy, who was as anti-German as any of them. Churchill had done his own also unauthorised deal for the British Navy to fight Germany alongside the French. Finally, Wilson's gang was also working with the leaders of the Tory party, who were as out and out for war as anyone. Air Crow reported back on foreign office gossip. Grey, he said, was afraid that Britain's trade would be ruined if they went to war. Well, as we saw in an earlier discussion, that's exactly what many industrialists and the governor of the Bank of England, with tears in his eyes, were saying. In the early hours of Saturday the 1st of August, Crow wrote to his wife. Maybe it was with this letter he included his sketch of a crow weeping into his handkerchief, which we found in his papers. He told his wife, quote, The cabinet is in panic, and it seems doubtful whether they will take the only honourable and absolutely necessary course and declare that they will stand by France if attacked. But what Crow writes next in his middle-of-the-night letter to his wife chills the soul. The government, he said, quotes, is funking owing to pressure of financial and commercial panic mongers whom I suspect to be instigated by the German-Jewish houses who are practically at the orders of Berlin. It's a numbing allegation. It hangs starkly and grotesquely in the historical mind's eye. That night, Air Crow deputy head of the British Foreign Office, quietly put in writing to his wife his belief that all talk of peace was a Jewish plot. He accused Jewish commercial houses of working on orders from Germany and of stirring up British trading interests to oppose the war. Major General Wilson, who openly scoffed at what he called that awful thing, an open mind, noisily agreed with Crow. The Foreign Secretary Gray, he maintained, was being bullied by British Jews trying to protect their German business partners. That's why he'd launched his campaign, pulling on all his anti-German contacts. They would head off what he openly declared to be a Jewish plot for peace and make sure Britain declare war. In a ghastly reference to the grisly anti-Semitic persecution that had blighted Eastern Europe for generations, Wilson openly called his war campaign that weekend a pogrom. 
Wilson's men sent cars and messengers by train to get the Conservative Party leadership back from its weekend playing tennis at Henley. The French embassy offered to help. The Stone Square men also sent messages to Charles Accord Reppington, military correspondent at the Times, and to their other friends in the right-wing press, telling them to post the most warlike headlines they dared. Above all, Wilson's anti-Semitic gang apparently decided that they would have to bully the Foreign Secretary Gray into submission. Crow told his wife that he'd been, quote, pleading hourly with Gray, who was undecided and tired. Crow had then stayed up late into the night, writing, quote, a strong and outspoken memorandum and sent it to Gray. That Saturday evening, 1st of August 1914, the Kaiser had been drinking champagne, sending his telegram to Buckingham Palace, believing the war with France was off. But in London's Foreign Office, Arthur Nicholson had been threatening to resign if Britain remained neutral. And now he stormed into Gray's office. They could not, he shouted, go back on their promise to fight alongside the French. Well, now we double-take. What promise, you may well ask? The only promise to fight alongside the French was the one that the British Army had, without any authorisation from anyone, covertly made to the French Army. Oh, and also Winston Churchill's madcap scheme for the two navies to divide up the seas between them. The British Cabinet had repeatedly declared that the British were under no obligation whatever to help the French, either from the Anglo-French Entente of 1904, or from these endless and unauthorised army talks, or indeed from Churchill's navy plan. Grey could easily have shouted back in Nicholson's face that there never had been any such promise. There was an army contingency plan and a naval proposal, but there was no promise. None of it committed the British to do anything at all. That was what the Cabinet had set out over and over again in writing. It really could not have been clearer. Instead, Grey apparently just gave Nicholson a tired and despairing look. You, bellowed the Foreign Office Mandarin Arthur Nicholson, will render us a byword among nations. Nobody, he implied, would ever trust the British again if they stayed neutral now. It was an outrageous scene, but Grace seems to have been shaken up by it, as well as by Crow's endless memos. He left his office and went to his club, Brooks's, in St James's Street, and there he met his parliamentary private secretary, Arthur Murray. Gray and Murray found a billiards table. Over the game, Gray told Murray that he had made a decision. After all his peacemaking talks with Lichnowsky, and despite all the telegrams to Berlin offering British neutrality and whatever had been agreed in Cabinet, he'd been persuaded by Nicholson, Crow and the anti-German clique. Gray told Murray that night he would send the army to fight alongside the French in Flanders. With peace in his grasp, he had decided to precipitate a war. Suddenly a summons arrived for Grey to report to the King at Buckingham Palace. In the course of Saturday the 1st of August 1914, a phalanx of British Army generals and highly placed bureaucrats at the Foreign Office launched a ferocious campaign. They would persuade the Foreign Secretary, Edward Grey, to abandon the peace talks that had led the Germans to suspend their planned attack on Belgium and France. They called their campaign a pogrom. What we were never taught at school is that these officials were not only convinced, without any evidence, that the Germans were bent on world domination, but that any talk of peace was a Jewish plot 
to get the British out of the way. In the middle of the evening of the 1st of August 1914, the German Kaiser, believing war with France and Britain to have been averted, had sent a delighted telegram to his cousin, King George V of England. When he received it, King George summoned Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary, to Buckingham Palace. What's this he wanted to know? Grey had lied to the Cabinet about his talks with the Germans and hadn't told the King anything about them. Obviously the King didn't want war, he just wanted to know what to reply to Cousin Vili. What happens next is hard to believe. Grey had spent much of the day in talks with Prince Lichnowsky, forging a way to avoid at the last moment a catastrophic war. But since then, Grey had been shouted at and bombarded with hostile memos by the anti-German civil servants at the Foreign Office. So now he mumbled to the King that Prince Lichnowsky had got it all wrong. No peace had been negotiated with the Germans. Grey sat down there and then and drafted a reply for the King to send. It began, quotes, There must be some misunderstanding. Britain, it went on, could not accept the German offer. Grey had nothing to suggest except perhaps another meeting with Lichnowsky. In just a few words scribbled late on the evening of the 1st of August 1914 at Buckingham Palace, without any authorisation whatever from anyone, and certainly no discussion with the British cabinet, Grey had just destroyed the best chance of negotiating peace in Europe. Well, telegrams from the King of England got through quickly. Just before midnight Berlin time, General von Moltke, chief of the German army's general staff, still recovering from his minor stroke, was ordered back to the Kaiser's palace. He found the Kaiser in bed. Now you can do what you want, he said. Germany's army was back on schedule for war, not only with Russia, but also with France. Meanwhile, in the middle of that same night, Saturday the 1st of August 1914, the British colonial secretary, Lulu Harcourt, met with other ministers from the Liberal government. Not knowing what had happened just up the road at the palace, they agreed to get together the next morning to head war off, whatever Gray and his friends said. But at that same time, Winston Churchill was walking to 10 Downing Street. There he found Gray, along with Richard Haldane, the war secretary, and Herbert Asquith, the prime minister. Ever since 1905, these three had agreed to work together. They'd made a pact at Grey's Scottish hunting lodge at Relugas. Well, by now the news had reached Downing Street that Germany had declared war on Russia. The four men took a series of decisions. Without any authorisation from Cabinet or Parliament, they sent a message informing the French that the Royal Navy would support them. At 1.25 that Sunday morning, 2nd of August 1914, Churchill mobilised the Royal Navy for war. Far from keeping it a secret, somebody tipped off the papers so that the mobilisation would make the morning additions. Grey went home to sleep at Haldane's house. He woke up at four o'clock in the morning. He'd had a nightmare. In it, his message to the French about naval support had been taken to the German embassy by mistake. The Germans must not yet know that he had effectively committed Britain to war against them. Later that Sunday morning, the German ambassador, Prince Lichnowsky, visited the Prime Minister Asquith and told him, tears pouring down his face, that the German government must have gone mad. Well, he had no idea about the telegram Grey had drafted the previous evening for the King to send the Kaiser, saying that there'd been a misunderstanding and that there'd never been a deal with Germany, the very deal Lichnowsky had spent so much careful time negotiating. So no wonder Lichnowsky thought his own government was to blame and had gone mad. It was a belief he would famously hold to the end of his life, 
and which post-war historians would gleefully use to lay all the blame for the war on Germany. Meanwhile, next door at number 11 Downing Street, the colonial secretary Harcourt and five other cabinet ministers were meeting with the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lloyd George. They discussed what they would do if Germany invaded Belgium. Now, as we saw at an earlier discussion, the old story that Britain had to go to war to defend Belgium if the Germans invaded just isn't true. Britain's treaty with Belgium, as the cabinet had recently checked and made sure, committed it to no such thing. Well, they all agreed, as Harcourt recorded, quotes, we would not go to war for mere violation of Belgian territory. They decided, quotes, to hold up, if possible, any decision today. By the time the cabinet met, however, Churchill's mobilisation of the British Navy was in all the papers. Harcourt and the others could see that they were losing any control of events. Most of the ministers around the table were now incandescent with anger. But the Relugas Three and their ally Churchill shot back that they would resign unless the cabinet agreed to back the Navy's move. Harcourt jotted in the notes he wasn't supposed to be taking of cabinet meetings, quotes, Grey is much stronger than before for joining in war. He would like to promise France our help today. Of course, it was typical of Grey. Truth was, in the middle of the night before, he'd already done so. The Foreign Secretary Edward Grey always afterwards claimed that during these days he was playing a clever game. Some historians are inclined to take him at his word. He would tell the French that Britain would not back them. He would tell the Germans that Britain would back the French. Both sides, he claimed, would therefore think twice about going to war. It sounds so plausible. But this was not what Grey was doing at all. In fact, he was doing exactly the opposite. The deal he'd discussed with Lichnowsky had unequivocally informed the Germans that Britain would stay neutral. By contrast, by getting Churchill's warships very publicly geared up for war and informing the French... Grey had sent the clearest possible signals to the French that the British were in and on their side. And it gets worse. When the British Cabinet met on Sunday the 2nd of August 1914, they discovered from the morning papers that the British fleet had already been mobilised for war. They were furious. But the Foreign Secretary Grey, War Secretary Haldane, Prime Minister Asquith and First Lord of the Admiralty Churchill, who'd together taken the decision the night before without consulting anyone else, bluntly threatened to resign if the Cabinet didn't back them. Grey now asked the Cabinet for backing to promise British help to the French. He didn't tell them he'd already promised it. Seeing the anger in the room, the Prime Minister Asquith tried to calm things down. Afterwards, he wrote to his girlfriend, Venetia Stanley, he wasn't supposed to be sharing cabinet secrets with her, but he told her that he'd reassured his furious colleagues that it was only a question of the Navy. Sending the British Army was out of the question, quotes, at this moment. The Colonial Secretary, Harcourt, scribbled the explanation that Grey gave. Since Italy was neutral, opined Grey, the French would have enough troops to defend their own northern border. There really was no need to send the British Army. Grey was being disingenuous to the point of downright dishonesty. After all, he told his parliamentary private secretary over a game of billiards just the night before that he'd already decided to send the army. He knew perfectly well, as did all the other men in the room, that he'd allowed the British and French armies to come to a completely unauthorised agreement to fight the Germans together. 
And that agreement was based entirely on the calculation that only together could they defeat a German invasion. By now, Trafalgar Square was filling up with protesters. We're always given the impression that the war was very popular in Britain in 1914. But whatever the reaction once war had been declared, that was certainly not the case before. There were peace rallies across the country, from Newcastle to Exeter, Ipswich to Manchester, and a hundred more in Scotland. What they didn't know was that Churchill, in defiance of the large majority of the cabinet, was already working out secret signals and other war details with the French naval attaché. The cabinet met again at 6.30 in the evening that day, Sunday the 2nd of August. Harcourt and the other anti-war ministers rounded furiously on Churchill for jumping the gun and mobilising the navy for war without their approval, and possibly for tipping off the papers about it. One of them, John Burns, announced he would resign. But after dinner, Harcourt discovered that Churchill's navy was already hatching a plan to attack German southwest Africa. Now, it was Harcourt who was the colonial secretary, and Churchill had no business poking his nose into the colonies without telling him. Harcourt marched briskly to Downing Street, and then to the Admiralty to scotch the idea. But at the same time, Churchill was writing to his wife, Clemmy, that he was excited about the prospect of war, which would give them a good drubbing. That evening, Sunday the 2nd of August 1914, Haldane's war office received intelligence that the Germans were about to enter Belgium. Now, just that morning, Grey had airily assured the Cabinet that the French were quite capable of defending themselves. No need to send the British Army. But now he, Haldane and Asquith, peremptorily and without any Cabinet agreement, mobilised the British Army. And then, and this is one of the most damning facts of all, they secretly informed the French what they'd done. The implication was the French could now make plans for an expeditionary force of the British Army to arrive alongside them at any time. Well, the Cabinet didn't find out until the next morning, Monday the 3rd of August. By now, four of the most anti-war Cabinet ministers had resigned. Asquith calmly informed his colleagues around the Cabinet table that, of course, in normal circumstances, a government facing four defections would resign, as in those days when on accounted for something in politics, it always would. But, continued Asquith, given the gravity of the situation, he would stick by Grey and stay on, even though it was a most thankless task. What Asquith knew, of course, and what the other ministers could have guessed, was that the leader of the Conservative Party, Andrew Bernard Law, had been to see him and informed him that he was utterly opposed to British neutrality. Well, of course he was. As we saw last time, together with his shadow cabinet, Bernard Law had hurried back that weekend from tennis at Henley in order to work with the British Army, the right-wing press and the anti-German, anti-Semitic faction in the Foreign Office. They were all going to make absolutely sure that Britain went to war. Well, you could put two and two together. If Asquith resigned and Bernard Law took over, there would be war anyway. The anti-war majority in the Cabinet knew they were helpless to stop the war now. Then Asquith fobbed off the ministers around the Cabinet table with the story that the army was being mobilised strictly for home defence. Harcourt passed him a note. It's still among his papers in the Bodleian Library and it sends a shiver down your back to come across it. Harcourt wrote... You don't contemplate sending an expeditionary force to France. And there is Asquith's scribbled reply. No, certainly not. But he had in effect already told the French to expect British troops to arrive. By the 3rd of August 1914, in the teeth of the furious opposition of the overwhelming majority of the Cabinet... 
Prime Minister Asquith and his three closest collaborators had mobilised both the British Navy and Army for war and led the French to believe that they were going to fight together against the Germans. All the time, Asquith and the Foreign Secretary Gray kept up the pretense that they were doing no such thing and were desperately working to keep the French and Germans from going to war. That morning, Monday the 3rd of August 1914, the Times splashed the news that the British Army already had a fully worked out plan to fight alongside the French in Flanders. As we saw in our first discussion in this series, the Times' military correspondent was Charles Accord Reppington, a disgraced army officer. He'd been secretly used as a back channel to get the Anglo-French army talks going back in 1905. On the 3rd of August 1914, Reppington's splash in the Times was part of an organised campaign to push the British into war. It was being coordinated by Henry Wilson, the Army's Director of Military Operations, from his Sloan Square house. And it took in civil servants, leading members of the Tory party and journalists in the right-wing press. They were openly saying that peace was nothing but a Jewish plot. The French, Reppington wrote, had mobilised the day before. It was, he went on, an outrage that the British hadn't already set off towards France. The joint Anglo-French army plan, which Wilson had been working on for years and which the British cabinet had never endorsed, though he didn't say that, absolutely depended on the two armies mobilising together. He wrote, To our troops, a place has been allotted in the French plan and all arrangements have been made for transporting them to the places assigned to them. If our troops at the last moment fail at the rendezvous and France is beaten as a consequence, history will assign our cowardice as the cause. There was, for the times, no question of neutrality. But whatever tricks civil servants, journalists and army officers were willing to play, even a British government cannot go to war without informing Parliament and getting its financial backing. So that Monday afternoon, 3rd of August, Grey got up, looking pale and tired in his light summer suit, to speak in the House of Commons. It was a bank holiday, and outside the sunny crowds were so dense cars couldn't get through. Inside, the chamber was packed, with extra chairs in the aisles. More MPs were stuffed into the House than for any speech since 1886. The French and Russian ambassadors were watching from the gallery. Gray spoke for an hour and a quarter. Historians usually write that it was the best speech of his career. Brilliant. Persuasive. Well, it was certainly an extraordinary performance. Early in the speech, he admitted to MPs that talks had been going on with the French for years about sending the British Army to help. Well, he hardly had any choice since Reppington had blown all the details in that morning's Times. These army talks, Grace solemnly told the House, don't commit the British to do anything. Quotes, they left the hands of the government free whenever the crisis arose. But later in the speech, however, Gray argued exactly the opposite. These army talks, he announced, imposed, quotes, an obligation on Britain. It was, he argued, quite impossible to stay neutral, precisely because, quotes, we have made the commitment to France. Which is exactly what he denied a few minutes earlier, and what the horrified cabinet had been warning all along. Then Gray turned to the deal Churchill had done with the French Navy. Three times Grey told the House that the French Navy had evacuated the Channel and so British ships just had to be mobilised to defend it. Without the Royal Navy, he declared, the Channel coastline of France would be absolutely undefended. Even for a man as accustomed to lying as Grey, this was an outstanding falsehood. As Grey perfectly well knew, nothing in Churchill's talks with the French 
obliged the Royal Navy to defend France's Channel coast. French ships had not evacuated the Channel. They'd already, in fact, taken station there to defend their ports. Churchill certainly knew it, and so probably did Grey. Grey now claimed that Germany intended to capture France, Belgium and the Netherlands and Denmark. Europe, he said, would be under the domination of a single power. Well, this was a lie of really breathtaking proportions, perhaps even greater than the American and British claim in 2003 that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction pointing in their direction and ready to fire. Gray's claim was an out-and-out fiction. He knew that he had no evidence of any kind whatsoever that Germany intended to seize any territory in the west of Europe or anywhere else. Well, then he brazenly told the House that the Germans had refused to offer anything substantial to avoid the coming conflict. The truth was that just two days before, he, Grey, and the German ambassador Lichnowsky had produced a formula which could well have avoided war in the West and probably in the East also. The Germans had instantly accepted it. The Kaiser had opened champagne, stood his army down. It was Edward Grey who had then single-handedly destroyed the deal, the last real chance of peace. Grey then told the House of Commons that Britain was bound by the 1839 Treaty of London to defend Belgium if it were invaded. It was yet another out-and-out lie. Just days before, the Cabinet had got the lawyers to examine the treaty in detail, and they discovered there was no such commitment. But Grey had yet to reach his most damning falsehood of all. As we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Café Pod. History Café.